This winter, we as a nation sent a team to South Korea to go compete on behalf of our nation. And when we send people out from our nation, it's with the hope that they're going to compete well, but they're also going to conduct themselves well, right? We want to see both of those things. And last weekend, as a church, we sent our high schoolers off. And they went off to Camp Covenant Pines with a a bunch of other high school youth groups. And it's our hope when we send them forth that they're going to represent Christ well in how they compete, but also in their conduct. And so let me speak first to the competition side of things. Um, They had a a big game, a big camp-wide game, and it was two churches versus three. And we were on the two-person, or they were, um, on the two-person side of things. And they won the big all-camp game. So good job, uh, high schoolers. And then they also had a broomball tournament. And so we had two teams. They had two teams. Well, they, we sent the delegation, right? So we, we had two teams, I guess you could say, ECC1 and ECC2. And guess which two teams were in the final? So that's super fun. Um, but what I intentionally did here with these things is I put them at the foot of the cross because none of that matters if we don't put everything at the foot of the cross, right? And what excited me most as I was hearing the stories about how things went with the high school snow camp is the way our young people were conducting themselves. And we just applaud you way to represent Christ well. I heard about how after the big game that, uh, that it was ECC students who stepped up and said, Hey, how can we help? Picking up the cones, picking up the flags. That when there was time for chapel, that we had different uh, students from our, our ministry, they were saying, hey, can I run, help run the slides? What do you need? When it was time to eat, I heard that at least one of our young men watched as everyone else you know, rushed, especially the guys, rushed the dining hall uh, serving line. And he held back to say, no, let's let the ladies go first. You know, I just, I, I love that. When we put the cross above all other things, when we represent Christ well in all that we do, whether we're competing, whether we're, we're serving, everything we do, if we put Christ first, then we're, we're witnessing well. And when we do that, when we invite people to join us, you know, people brought friends to come on this retreat that hadn't had experiences like this before. When we do that, then they have a chance to experience something different. Something different. And they're invited into this community where relationships are real instead of virtual And they get to experience community where the sportsmanship level and the competition level are both high. And they get a chance to to go and experience an event where people come back saying things like, the communion service, that was my highlight. Instead of my highlight was sneaking out of the cabin or whatever, you know, stuff often happens. And they had a chance in this camp in particular at Covenant Pines where they get to see as we try to outserve the camp staff, as they try to outserve us, because that's what we do as Christians, right? We serve one another. And so when you bring someone into a distinctly Christian community, they have a chance to see something different. And it's been my experience so many times that when that happens, the people come away saying, I want more of this, or even I need more of this. And oftentimes they come back saying, we got to invite others to experience this. When we represent Christ well, We're witnessing well, and witnessing well is what we're going to be looking at today as we dive into John chapter 4. This Lent, we've been digging into the gospel of John. And here's the question that we're going to wrestle with today. There's a place to write this down in your notes. We have an insert there, a purple insert. We encourage you to take it out and write this down. In a culture like ours, how do we witness well? In a culture like ours, how do we 
witness well. And as I mentioned earlier, the passage that we're going to explore today is John chapter 4. And one of the witnesses that's featured in this passage is not the kind of person that most of us would expect to be an effective witness. And yet, before we get to the end of today's true story, a whole town of outsiders are coming to faith in Christ through the witness of a woman who is even more outsider-er than they were. And we've circled to this section of Scripture many times. In fact, I don't know if there's a, a part of the Bible that we've come back to more times than this one as a church and studied. And yet, I think one of the things that we've, we haven't done yet is to look at the person who is the central figure of this story. We've often focused at this Samaritan woman that we're going to come across in this story, but she's not the central figure. Today, we're going to look at the central figure, the one who is the catalyst for her saying, you've got to meet this guy. And that's Jesus of Nazareth. We're going to look at him and his life and the things that he taught. And I was really intentional in the way that I worded this opening question, this question that I stated in a culture like ours, how do we witness well? Because one of the things that, that we see in this Jesus of Nazareth is when people follow his example and his teaching, that's what witnessing well looks like. And if you study anthropology, if you study folks, you'll find that all around the world where Christianity has gone, regardless of the culture, regardless of the time period, regardless of the geography, people who've imitated Christ have drawn others into that community. So the ultimate question here, or the answer, the foundational answer to in a culture like ours is how do we witness well? The, the, the answer, foundational level is follow the example and teaching of Jesus. So that's what we're going to look at today. What are some lessons that we can learn about witnessing well through Jesus? All right, if you have your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you to open with me to John chapter 4, verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to leave with one free today. We keep a copy each and every week or several copies there um, at the table on your way out. Please uh, take one home as a free gift to you. We'd love for you to do that. All right, here we go. John chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. We'll start there. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. All right, we're going to hit pause, and then we'll come back to the the rest of chapter 4 here. But let's unpack this a little bit. John says that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. And when we hear those words had to, that usually implies I don't want to, right? When you say I have to do something, usually it's I don't want to do it. And most Jews who wanted to get from Judea to Galilee where Jesus was going, they didn't want to pass through Samaria. Samaria was a region that was right between Judea in the south and Galilee in the north. Judea and Galilee were mostly Jewish, which Jesus was. But Samaria was home to the Samaritans. And there was a lot of tension between the Samaritans and the Jews, sometimes to the point of bloodshed. So there's an element of danger if you're a Jew and you had to cross through Samaria. But there's also the added element of ritual uncleanliness. The Jews believed that the Samaritans were an unclean people to the point where if you were a Jew, it was taught anyway, that if you were a Jew and you ate off of a plate that a Samaritan used or you drank from a cup that a Samaritan drank from, you would become unclean. So there were devout Jews who said, we have to avoid that place altogether if we want to be uh, honoring God with our lives. Well, because of this, there were many devout Jews who, again, would avoid Samaria altogether. And that was quite a detour. 
I tried to think, you know, in terms of our own location, what that would look like. And here's the best I could do with approximate mileage and that type of thing. If you envision Farmington in the south as Judea, and you envision Cambridge in the north as Galilee, Samaria, Samaria would be like the entire Twin Cities metro area. And so, if you wanted to avoid being corrupted by all those suburbanites and all those city people, you're an outstate folk, you, what you would do is you would head uh, be east to Hastings, you would cross the Mississippi River there at Prescott, you would go north through New Richmond, and then you'd cross back over in Taylor's Falls, and you'd do all this on foot to avoid those unclean suburbanites and unclean city people. It was like that. There were some people who believed that they had to go to lengths like these to avoid Samaria. That's how bad things were. Well, Jesus of Nazareth felt differently about all this. The Greek word that is translated in our Bibles here as had to is a word that indicates divine necessity everywhere else that it appears in John. So Jesus felt he had to do something, but the had to was not avoid Samaria. It was what? Go right through it. He had to go through Samaria because he had good news to share. So as we explore what it was about Jesus that inspired this unlikely witness that we're about to meet, let's start with this. There's a place to write this in your notes. We're going to look at, at some different principles that we can pull from this encounter that happens at the well. And let's start with this one. Jesus didn't insulate himself the way that religious people often do. If Jesus was going to be faithful to his mission to seek and save the lost, he had to go and be with the people that he came to save. Let's pick up with verse 5. So Jesus came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about what time? The sixth hour. Now, John, one of the things that we see in the book of John is that as an eyewitness, he includes a lot of details. And when he includes details, he includes them for a reason. And this detail about the sixth hour, that's there for a reason. One of my sources, as I was studying this thing, said that the sixth hour can refer to 6 p.m. Several of my resources said that the sixth hour can refer to 6 a.m. All of my resources, including the ones I've just referenced, said that primarily it refers to noon. And that's what all of my sources said. He's talking about noon right now. And that detail will come into play shortly. The location is going to matter too, which brings us to our second lesson from the well. There's a place to write this in your notes. Jesus was attentive to the context of every conversation. Every conversation has a context, doesn't it? Everyone does. And in chapter 3, last week, we came across a conversation that Jesus had with someone who was an influential, righteous, Jewish man in Judea, and that conversation happened at night. Interestingly enough, this next conversation in chapter 4 is a conversation that Jesus had with someone who was a marginalized, scandalous, Samaritan woman who appears at a well near Mount Gerizim in Samaria at high noon. And these are, I believe, juxtaposed up and against each other. And one of the things, at least I draw from this, 
is that those who witness well don't follow a one-size-fits-all script. Those who witness well are aware, highly aware, of the individual person that they're talking to in the individual context that they're in. Verse 7 says this, A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away to the city to buy what? Food. Remember that detail as well. All right, so it's the sixth hour. It's around noon. And Jesus was where you'd expect him to be. He'd been traveling all morning and he's taking a break. It is now noon. It is the heat of the day. And so he is taking a rest by this well. Totally makes sense. Well, as he's sitting there, he takes his cell phone and sets it aside. Most important lesson of all this right here, okay? Sets it aside and he's aware of what's going on around him. Jesus, again, is where you'd expect him to be. He had been traveling all morning, as I said, and was taking a break. Well, as he is looking around, he notices something out of the ordinary. And it was unusual to see a woman coming alone to the well. What was even more unusual is that she was coming at noon. Because noon is the heat of the day. And that's hard work. So she is there in the, in the heat of the day alone. And Jesus recognizes there's something unusual about this. So then Jesus does something unusual. And he asks her for a drink. There's a place to write this down. Jesus initiated a conversation that inspired curiosity. In that time, in that place, a righteous man would not initiate a conversation with a woman. And if that's not enough, there's this whole matter of uncleanliness. Because if she does draw the water, he's going to drink from an unclean vessel. So this is highly unusual. Well, we can see from her response that she did not see this coming. Verse 8, the Samaritan woman says to Jesus, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Well, as he did with Nicodemus, the person from chapter 3, Jesus speaks with layered language here. Language that, that, that draws her into this conversation. At one level, living water was a phrase that people used in Jesus' world. It would refer, it's, it's what you would call a river. They call it living water because it's fresh and it's clean and it's flowing. It's not a stagnant pool where the water is just going to get nasty. Well, in her situation, living water is something she may have never seen before with her eyes. One of my sources did a good job of pointing out the fact that in that area, there are no streams. There are no rivers. So it's very possible that she'd never even seen living water with her own eyes. But there's another layer here, something else that she had not experienced yet. And that is something that John had been revealing to us as readers since the beginning of his gospel. And it's a layer that he's going to continue to reveal with even greater clarity in the chapters to come. Throughout the first three chapters, John has been weaving in teaching about the Holy Spirit. And by the time we get to chapter 7, he makes the direct connection between the Holy Spirit 
and living water. Let's just jump ahead a little bit. John chapter 7 says this, starting with verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of what? Living water. Now this was said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. If you want to witness well, there's probably no more important lesson than the one I'm going to encourage you to write down right now. And there's a place to write this in your notes. Faith conversations are more likely to go well if we're attentive to the whispers of the Holy Spirit. In fact, you could make a case that's the whole key right there. If we could learn to discern the voice of the Holy Spirit, to learn to discern those whispers, that's the key. You know, if you look at the life of Jesus, it seemed like he always knew what to say and when to say it. Sometimes he had hard words to bring. Sometimes they were tender. Sometimes it was a mixture of both. Not everyone always received those words, but he always seemed to know what to say in every situation. So much so we're still studying his words today. You know, thousands of miles away, thousands of years later, he always seemed to know what to say. And one of the connections that's made in the New Testament is there are sections of the Bible where you're reading about the Holy Spirit and it goes right into the Spirit of Christ. They use the phrase interchangeably sometimes. So that Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ in us that we can have access to. If you'd like to respond more to Christ, learning how to discern the whispers of the Holy Spirit is central. All right, let's move on to verse 11. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. One of the things that's interesting about this Jacob's well where they are is that archaeologists believe they know where it is today. In that area, you're not going to find a whole lot of new wells because a lot of these wells, they're the only place where water is, right? So, so they're going to be in the same location. And there is a, a well that they refer to these days as Jacob's well, and it's a deep, deep well, 138 feet or something like that. A deep, deep well it was possibly the deepest well in Israel at the time. And here's something very interesting about that deep well. Jacob's well connects those who draw from it to an underground river, to living water. You know, I think of all the times that God does this type of thing, where he highlights something, whether it's him talking through the prophets, whether it's, him, it's Jesus talking to people, where they'll say, consider the lilies of the field. See that fire. See this temple where he draws their attention to something right there in their context. And in this case, those who came to this deep well could access living water. And look what Jesus says next as he takes the conversation deeper. Jesus says to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Well, English seems to fall short here when it comes to translating the Greek. The phrase that's translated here as welling up 
would be more accurately communicated with something like leaping up. What's happening here if you have this living water, Jesus is describing something that will leap up within you. What Jesus is describing here is a vibrant, abundant life. And that brings us to the lesson from the well, number five. Faith conversations are more likely to go well if we share what? Good news. If we share good news. If we share something that is welling up inside of us. Instead of something that is intended to bring guilt or shame. In every conversation that you have with someone, you're a good, if you are a believer, you're a good news bringer. I would encourage you to, to pray and discern, God, what is the good news that I'm bringing to this person? The good news is not, you're a sinner. The good news is that all of us are sinners and there's a God who made a way for us to get into right relationship with him, to get in right relationship with one another, to experience a vibrant life, an abundant life, one that begins now and goes on to eternity, a life in a community of people who can see past your past and welcome you as family, a safe place, a community that's supposed to be a safe place where you can ask questions and be real. A community where you can experience life that is characterized by peace and forgiveness and purpose and joy. When we witness correctly, we're good news bringers. We're inviting people to pursue the life that they long for most. A life that if we understand it, can have something within us well up, leap up. I I love this quote that I came across this week by N.T. Wright. He says this, A friend of mine described the reaction when he went home as a young teenager and he announced to his mother that he'd become a Christian. They've brainwashed you, she said. The young man said, if you saw what was in my brain, you'd realize it needed washing. (laughs) I love how honest that response is. N.T. Wright goes on to say this. He says, if anything, it is our surrounding culture that brainwashes us. Can I get an amen? It persuades us in a thousand subtle ways that this present world is the only one that there is. And I would add to that, also it it, it deceives us into thinking that we can go to the same well over and over and over again that doesn't truly satisfy and think that this time it will. That well of an empty relationship, that well of the busyness, the well of whatever. You know, he goes on to write this. What the gospel does is administer a sharp jolt to shine bright light, to kickstart the brain with the moral sensibility into working properly for the first time. When we see the good news for what it really is and the life that God invites us into together in community, it is a treasure worth leaving everything to gain. And Jesus cared enough because he could see what is possible to speak the truth in love. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying, I have no husband. For you've had five husbands. And the one that you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. I want you to encourage to write this down. Jesus was a truth teller. 
Jesus was a truth teller. Jesus could have set a different example for us here. When the woman came to the well, he could have set the example of, hey, here comes this woman. Hey, you, let me draw water for you. Here you go. Be on your way. He could have set that example. And if she had seen that example, she could have come away thinking one of two things. Either thinking, wow, what a nice guy. Or two, which is much more likely in that culture, this guy was just propositioning me. Those are the two things that she would have came away with. Instead, Jesus goes to a more real place, a deeper place with that conversation, and that is a place of truth. And this is very important to note. If you're going to set out to be a truth teller, you can be a jerk truth teller. Isn't that true? That's not it. That's not what we're called to be. These judgmental, accusatory people. That's, that's what Satan means. The name Satan means what? The accuser. That's not what we're talking about here. And look at the example of Jesus. Jesus, with gentleness and compassion and respect for her as a person, he brings the conversation to a real place. If we want to witness well, we are disregarding the clear teaching of Scripture if we say peace, peace, when there is no peace. That's a teaching you see in the Old Testament and the New. But here's the thing. We also, we also disregard the clear teaching of Scripture when we jump to judgment and we start pointing fingers and we fail to point people to God's amazing grace. John provides brilliant brevity here in the details in this case that he chooses to omit. Again, John, read through the, the, the book of John. You're going to see detail, 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 detail. Here you don't see a very important detail. What's her backstory? What happened? Do you notice he just omits it? Now, I'm reading into the scripture right here. This is speculation on my part. But I think that was on purpose. Especially since he's so careful to include details. I think that's on purpose. Because when it comes to encountering people and trying to bring good news, for us to jump to conclusions about their backstory, that is just wrong on so many levels. And we don't know her backstory here. It could have been that she had a husband who died. And in that time and in that place, if you didn't have family around you, she would have been in a desperate situation. That could have set off a, a series of events that just put her in a, on, a, on a path that she really didn't have as much choice as we think she had. It could have been that her first husband left her. We don't know. And I think there's a real important lesson there in what John didn't say. And that is to not jump to conclusions about people's backstory. It really doesn't matter. What matters is now and going forward, right? And trying to point people to this living water. What does appear obvious, if we go back to the text and, and move away from as much speculation as I just did there, is, and, and we look at the details that John does include, it really appears as though Jesus has reached out to someone that both the Jewish and the Samaritan communities have shunned. This is a woman who has been marginalized. And when Jesus spoke the truth in love to this woman, the woman at the well had the choice that we all make when people bring truth our way. What are you going to do with it? When a hard truth comes your way, how are you going to react? And we see that when Jesus shone, shined the light into to other people's lives and their, their true colors came out, and when he shined that light into a rich man's life, there was a rich man who's like, I'm, nope, this isn't for me. 
And there were other people that chose their lifestyle or their status or their pride or whatever instead of the living water that Jesus offered. This woman chose not to run, at least not yet. Verse 19, the woman says to Jesus, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. All right, so she's recognizing here that Jesus has deep insights into her soul. And it's interesting to see the progression of how she refers to Jesus. When she first encounters Jesus, she, she refers to him as a Jew. Then it moves to sir. And now it is at prophet. So she's starting to see there's something here, but she still has some walls that are still up. Earlier, she says Jacob had given her people the well. And now when she talks about worship, she uses the past tense. She says, we worshiped on the mountain. From their vantage point at Jacob's well, they could see Mount Gerizim, whose name you can find in the prophetic writings of Moses himself. Her people considered that mountain holy, and they built a temple there to the God of Abraham, to the God of Jacob. And guess who destroyed that temple? The Jews. And so she says, yeah, we used to worship on that mountain over there. Your people destroyed it. But Jesus doesn't take the bait. And he doesn't go off a direction for this conversation that is not going to be helpful at all. Jesus reveals that holy buildings and holy mountains are at their best signposts to the real thing. Verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know the Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. And in the Greek, it basically is, I who speak to you am. Which is a direct link to deity, to God. So this conversation is going on, and the disciples come back from where? Getting lunch, right? They're getting food, and they come back, and they marvel that he's talking with a woman. What's going on there? But no one said, what do you seek, or why you're talking with her? And we're going to come back to the disciples in just a minute. But first, let's look at what John writes about the woman and the impact that her encounter with Jesus had, not just on her, but on her village. Okay, picking up verse 28. So the woman left her what? Her water jar. Does that detail matter? Yes. Her entire purpose in going to the well was to fill the water jar with water and bring it home. And she did it at noon so she wouldn't run into the people who were shunning her. Now what's she doing? She's leaving the water jar behind and running to find those same people that she had been trying to avoid. Why? Because she had to. She had to. She had experienced an encounter with Christ that she had to tell people about. Not out of guilt, not out of a sense of obligation, but because something was welling up inside her and she needed to share it. So let's go back to 28 and take it through 30. So the woman left her water jar. She went away into town and she said to the people who had once shunned her, Come and see. 
See a man who told me everything I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. Here's this come and see language that we've been seeing throughout this journey in John so far. Come and see. Sometimes words fall short. And the best we can do is to say, you've got to see this for yourself. You've got to experience this for yourself. One of the most effective things that we can do. It's for all of us to contribute to trying to have as Christ-like a community as we can. So when people come, they come and they see. This is the life that I'm invited into. And they can see it for themselves. While the unlikely witness is in town testifying to her encounter with Christ, the disciples are unpacking their takeout. Meanwhile, it's picking up with verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him saying, Rabbi, your fries are getting cold. But he says to them, he says to them, I got food to eat that you guys obviously know nothing about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him anything to eat? They go to Grubhub, what's going on here? And Jesus says to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. So picture this. The disciples went to get food. They come back. They're thinking about food. Jesus is saying, I got food to eat that you guys don't know anything about. There is a harvest here if you just open your eyes. And as they're focused on their fig turnovers, you know, out in the distance, here literally comes who? The woman. And who's with her? The town. Look. And so, so Jesus explained this to Peter. And Peter's looking at him like, what are you even talking about? Pass the ketchup. Right? This is what's going on. Wow, how remarkable. What Jesus is modeling in front of these disciples is something they don't understand yet. And what he's modeling is something he's later going to do through them when the Holy Spirit falls upon them. What he had done in chapter 3, we saw, he was witnessing to someone in Jerusalem and in Judea, Nicodemus. And now he's bringing this good news to Samaria. And eventually it's going to go to the ends of the earth. And isn't that what we see in the book of Acts? You will be my witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. But at this stage of their development, they're more concerned about lunch. And as Jesus keeps his eyes fixed on the road that leads to Sychar, it isn't long before he sees a familiar face leading people his way. And Jesus doesn't mind that the ice is melting in his iced tea. The woman who had once been shunned had experienced something so remarkable that the afterglow inspired curiosity. Verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all I ever did. And when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the savior of From a Jew to sir to prophet 
to the Savior of the world. We live in a world that thirsts for living water. And there are people all around us. There's probably people in this room. You long for it right now. You know that there's more to life than what you're experiencing. And then there's a much larger group that don't know it because they're moving too fast. And they think by going to that same well over and over and over again, the well of another relationship, the well of busyness, the well of this activity or that, that somehow their thirst is going to get met. And we're dying inside. This is one of the reasons why we as a church, we put a stake in the ground this year every time Lent comes around. And we say we're not going to just let Easter be a pleasant interruption. Let's take a season where we dig deeper and we stop doing what we're normally doing. And that's why that insert in your bulletin is going to be there throughout Lent because we want to invite you to try something different, to try some of these practices that are designed to take us deeper and to discover this Savior, the one who knew thirst, the one who knew what it was like to be weary and who invites us to come and have living water. He invites us to look beyond lunch and come to a different table. And Jason, um, if we want to have the worship band come forward, Jason found this amazing song called Come to the Table, and the worship band is going to lead us. And I want to encourage you to, to, to receive this song as an invitation to come to the table. And then after the song, we're going to extend an invitation to you to join us for what we call the Sacrament of Holy Communion and join us at a table and receive from Christ. So here's the last set of of, of blanks here in your notes today. If you want to learn more about Jesus or become more like him, we invite you to lean into Lent and that can start right now. Let me pray. Father, we're so thankful that you are an inviting God and that you give us these opportunities to drink from this deep well, to come to this table. Father, we pray that we would seize this opportunity that's before us right now. In Jesus' name, amen.